Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. I'm just seeing how good you are at these beginnings. Yeah, well, okay, let's try it. Right. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Uh, today, Sodfather Don Pedro is very pleased to be joined by another of his academic brothers. Um, Jim Garrish is an author, a speaker, a consultant. He's been working in the area of grazing management for a few years. We won't specify just how many. We'll let him fill that in. How are you doing, Jim? I'm doing very well, Peter. Um, and it, it, just to throw it out there, it's 40 plus years. 40 years. Yeah. Um, so there's been a few changes over the years, but let's get into this slowly. Um, how was it that Jim Garrish got interested in grazing management? What did that look like? Okay. Um, I, I actually grew up as a, on a crop farm. We did not have cattle. We did not have pastures. So I didn't grow up doing any of the, um, you know, cattle and pasture stuff. Um, we did grow alfalfa as a cash crop, and we had a custom hay baling business. And, yeah, yeah, that's the guy who wrote the book, Kick the Hay Habit. <laughs> yeah. So when I was a young man working in the custom hay business, I loved it. You know, I... I like the smell of diesel smoke as much as anybody and that aroma of fragrance of fresh mown, you know, hay, it was wonderful. It just, as time went by, it didn't make economic sense to do that anymore. So anyway, um, one summer, my uh, sister's, my one of my oldest sister was married to German, uh, grew up in Argentina after World War II. Um, <laughs> And his brother ranched down there. And so this was in 1977, I believe, that he came and spent a good bit of time on the, the farm where, you know, I was growing up. And this guy, you know, he came and came and they talked about, you know, finishing beef entirely on pasture. He talked about moving the cattle to fresh pasture every day. He talked about the importance of diversity in the pastures and um, didn't say the word soil health, but, you know, basically said that the first thing we have to look after is the soil. And so that was my first exposure to something different than what the neighbors who cat had cattle did, which was basically if you couldn't farm a piece of ground, it was wasteland. And so it was pasture and you threw some cows out there. And it was continuous grazing. It was no management. It was land degrading. And this guy from Argentina came and talked about a completely different way. So that was my first um, introduction to it. And he actually got his training in grazing management from Madame Voisin, which meant nothing to me at the time. But Andre Voisin wrote a book called Grass Productivity, which in my view is the most significant book on grazing management written in the 20th century. And after his death, his wife traveled through South America teaching grazing management. And my sister's brother-in-law, Martin Rustel, was one of those individuals who learned grazing management from uh, Madame Wazan. So I mentioned that book. Um, when I started graduate school, I actually went to University of Kentucky on a plant breeding uh, assistantship, decided I wasn't very interested in plant breeding and asked to switch to some other program. And they had a new faculty member from New Zealand, Chuck Dougherty. You've heard that name, I'm pretty sure, Peter. Yeah, yeah, I have. I'm somewhat <laughs> okay. familiar. Yeah, that, that, that's what makes Peter and I academic brothers is we were both students of, uh, graduate students of Chuck Dougherty. And so Dougherty was coming over to take the pasture ecology position I had no idea what pasture ecology meant. I didn't know what grazing management we were really going to get into. And so I just went to the library and started pulling books off the shelf about grazing. And I had the good fortune in 1978 
of polling Andre Voisant's Grass Productivity, a book off the shelf and read it at the beginning of my academic career. And it was unlike anything else I was exposed to um, as the undergraduate or later on in graduate school. But it is the, um, uh, Andre Voisant is who really shaped uh, my perspectives and understanding of grazing management. So. Now, where would where did you grow up? Southern Illinois. Southern Illinois. Did did you go to Berea, or am I confused about that? Uh, you're confused about that. Okay. Um, I I went to a community college uh, close to home, Kaskaskia Community College. Then finished undergraduate at University of Illinois in agronomy. Then went to graduate school at UK. Okay. Um, and and then <clears throat> after UK, you went to University of Missouri, and you Correct. ended up in a, a grazing research farm in northern Missouri. Right. Is that the the University of Missouri's Forage Systems Research Center, about a hundred miles from the Columbia, the main campus at Columbia, up in uh, North Missouri. And uh, I'm one of those rare people who. I only ever applied for one job out of graduate school. I only ever had one job interview, got that job and spent 22 years, three months uh, in that position at University of Missouri, uh, working in uh, grazing research, primarily with beef cattle. We did some sheep work and then I did a little, you know, cooperative uh, grazing work with some of the dairy scientists too. But Primarily, it was um, uh, plant, soil, animal relationships in grasslands grazed by beef cattle. That's where my research focus was. And there are a number of publications that are still available from University of Missouri, um, the title Management Intensive Grazing. So what, what, what's the thought behind that name? Okay, um, so in um, probably the, if we start with the term controlled grazing or time controlled grazing, um, when Alan Savory, who was the founder of uh, the holistic management, um, and it started out as holistic resource management, HRM, then it just became holistic management, so Alan Savory uh, started holistic management. And when he first came to North America from uh, uh, Rhodesia at that time, Zimbabwe now, with his partner, um, Stan Parsons. Stan Parsons, uh, okay. So Alan Savory's a wildlife biologist. Stan Parsons was an agricultural economist, kind of an odd uh, linking there. Uh, they worked together initially uh, teaching a different way of grazing management. And they talked about either controlled grazing or cell grazing. And uh, so we used that term early on. And then sometime in the uh, early 1980s, the terminology became intensive grazing management, IGM. And Bert Smith from the University of Hawaii wrote a book called uh, Intensive Grazing Management. And it had all the concepts, you know, in there, right? But um, what we found was way too many uh, farmers and ranchers, they were doing the intensive grazing without the management piece of it. Yes, they were using electric fence to subdivide pastures and they were concentrating their animals in one area, but it was kind of graze it to oblivion and then move on rather than graze it to an appropriate residual and then move on. And Alan Nation, the editor of Stockman Grass Farmer Magazine, and uh, we were on a program together. I think it was the, I don't remember if it was Iowa Sheep Producers or Iowa Forge and Grassland Council, but we were uh, where, you know, so much of our great work took place. We were sitting in the bar at the Holiday Inn restaurant, you know, in the evening after the conference and bemoaning the fact of all these cattlemen out there who are doing intensive grazing, but forgot the management. And at that moment, I said, 
You know, Alan, we just have the words in the wrong order. It isn't intensive grazing management. It is management intensive grazing. And I think it's very important that we have the hyphen between the management and intensive. And when I write it, it's always um, capital M management hyphen lowercase i intensive grazing. Now, it's embarrassing that my book, Management Intensive Grazing, does not have the hyphen in the title. Um, several authors have told me that the author doesn't own the the, the cover, that that's somebody that, else's. That, that is correct. <laughs> um, so jumping back just a little bit, because I've thought of this, that what Andre Voisson was doing with his work long predates the, the technological revolution mm -hmm. that we now have. <clears throat> and so he was doing his work with hard fences. And now right. we have this portable technology mm -hmm. that is incredibly flexible. Yeah. Uh, for, for, for the listeners, uh, to put it in a time frame context, uh, Vazan worked from about 1920 to 19, his death in 1961. So that's the era that um, he did his research in and his writings and teaching. And uh, Pete, you're absolutely right. Uh, the management that he is suggesting and recommending is so much easier today because of the technological advances. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know why everybody's not doing it. And I, I don't know if you're, uh, we've probably had this conversation, but James Anderson in Scotland in the late 1700s, um, basically all of the time management aspects and, you know, stock, uh, increasing animal stock density, reducing pasture size, adjusting the length of the recovery period. Uh, James Anderson in Scotland wrote all of that in 17, the late 1770s and 80s. So it's, no, it's not new ideas, but technology has made it much more feasible. See, back in Anderson's day, you, if you wanted to move fences, you're moving rocks, you know, well, those rocks and move them every day. Nobody wants to do that. No, it, I, I suspect it was more like they just opened the gate into that little fold yep. in between the rocks and then moved on. Yep. And and the whole value of legumes in their lay farming systems. And now mm -hmm. you've got livestock. In, well, it, the 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 new concept of integrating livestock into cropping systems is really coming back to yeah. what had been until relatively recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for thousands of years, yeah. um, livestock farming and crops were inextricably linked, and in the the Middle East and Southern Europe, um, they knew. 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, that um, the soil, the plants, the animals all work together to make the most productive and, you know, just using the S word, the sustainable system. They, we knew that two to 3,000 years ago, and industrial farming and specialization is what tore apart the fabric of healthy landscapes, healthy food, healthy communities, healthy people. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was watching a presentation of yours and you quoted someone as saying, um, wire is only as good as your water. That's awesome. You want to explain that? Okay. Um, the proximity or availability of stock water water for the animals to drink is what really determines how they're going to use the landscape, how far they will travel away. You know, um, so I grew up in the Midwest, worked uh, my academic career in the Midwest, and then uh, quit academics. Sometimes I get introduced as a retired professor. I quit the university when I was 47 years old because I just needed to do something different in life. And that's when we moved out west here to Idaho. And before I moved out here, you know, I thought that a cow on the range, you know, could walk 10 miles between water holes with a smile on her face and 
uh, just everything would be grand. The reality is, and it depends on landscape, but in most landscapes, by the time they are a half a mile away from water, they're already changing their grazing behavior because they're thinking about how soon they're going to turn around and go back to water. And so um, in big ranch environments like where we are now on rangeland, uh, our target is to not have cattle walk more than a half a mile uh, to water. And that's the way, one of the ways that we can even out grazing distribution, manure distribution, and have a more functional mineral cycle going on is by shortening the travel distance to water. Now, when, when I was at the University of Missouri, we did some grazing distribution research uh, in that hot, humid, high stress environment of Missouri. And we found that, you know, at peak of summertime, uh, by 600 to 800 feet, away from the water tank, they were changing their grazing behavior. So if we're, if, if, if I were uh, working with a cattle producer, say in um, uh, Western Tennessee, we would be designing the stock water supply to keep the animals within about 800 feet of water at all times. And then this is where the, the wire being only as good as your water comes into play is you could be in West Tennessee and you could, you know, fence your farm into 50 little paddocks. But if you then used a lane for, that the animals had to get out into a lane, walk a half a mile to a water tank at the barn and then walk back out to the pasture, it would be terribly inefficient. You wouldn't get the uh, animal performance, the productivity that you want. A whole lot of your dung and urine would end up in that lane. So you would actually be creating almost a point source pollution or point source pollution um, along that lane. So it became very important to have the water out in every one of those 50 pastures so that the animals aren't traveling so far and they're not depositing all those nutrients um, in the lane. So whether we're talking about, you know, a, a huge landscape ranch landscape in the west or a relatively small farm in the southeast, um, we use a different distance criteria for how far we'll allow animals to travel to water, but the, the concept that water location drives grazing distribution and hence uh, the carrying capacity, the livestock carrying capacity of your farm or ranch is very closely tied to what your stock water availability is. And so these, in, these investments in infrastructure, um, many times it's been my experience, um, too many livestock producers are looking to make <clears throat> investments elsewhere as, as initial investments and I, it's been my experience that the people that pay attention to <clears throat> livestock control, which means water and fencing, far is a far better initial investment than major agronomic improvements or some of the other things that we yeah. can spend money on. Right. right. Um, the majority of degraded pastures that I look at all around the country um, if the manager would change the management on those, shift from set stocking to time controlled management, um, it would cure most of the problems. We've seen many, many, many examples of what really looked like terrible degraded land. If, if it's in the uh, wetter part of the country, and you know, by that I'll say any place that gets more than 30 inches of annual precipitation, you can take most degraded landscapes and in three to five years of good management, you've got really good pasture out there. In the dry environments, particularly once we get down to 15, 16 inches of precipitation or less, uh, it takes longer to heal the land. But I was... Um, just talking with a client in Western Oklahoma earlier today, 
and they, they'd been, you know, kind of playing with grazing, as we say, and they saw the benefits on their range. And it, it, it's a good size outfit. I think it's like 11,000 acres or something. And they're, you know, jumping in both feet. I think we're looking at uh, something on the order of 15 miles of livestock water pipelines, 50 new drinking points. Now, some of those will be serviced with uh, uh, a portable tank rather than a permanent trough. Um, but from their three years of playing with grazing on a smaller scale using portable fence, portable water, they've seen how quickly uh, their range can respond. And I think that's about a 22 inch precipitation environment. Um, you know, th th this is uh, going to be several hundred thousand dollar project, but they, you know, see what the return on that investment is going to be. And, but, you know, based on other projects we've done in similar environments and scale, um, it's quite possibly going to be 20 plus percent annual. If you look at a five-year payback on the investment infrastructure investment you're making, it ends up being a 20 plus percent return on investment. Yeah, those opportunities are you, you, lots of places you can get 20% these days. And um, no. I'm missing them. Yeah. <laughs> um, you told me a story relative to water in you, the part of the country that you live in. You told me of a story that relates to the value of a good horse. The value of a good horse? Yeah. Um, as mm. the, the, the cowboy had a better horse than his neighbor, they both oh, set out. Okay. Yeah. That's the, that's the water rights on the, the this ranch that we're living on out here. Um, so where we live, the average annual precipitation is between seven and eight inches. Uh, we are in the mountains. We're right at the, you know, foot of, uh, the Lemhi mountain range. And so summer irrigation water here is snow melt directly off the mountains. We don't, we don't pump any water. We don't store water in a reservoir. We simply are diverting water, snow melt water out of the mountain creeks, put it in a pipeline and we run center pivots off of it. All right, so way back in 1882, uh, two fellows had come in in the valley, this area in uh, the late fall, had not been to the county seat, which is Salmon. At that time, they called it Salmon City. And to, you know, register their water rights. And so when enough snow had melted that they could travel the 60 miles downriver to uh, Salmon to register their water rights, they basically started a horse race and um, there is a four hour difference. Our, our water right, I believe is 10 a, uh, April 17th, 10 a.m., 1882. The ranch immediately below us, it's the same day, but it's 2 p.m. Now, neither, no, neither of these ranches is the current ownership, have any kinship, blood relation, descendant from those two original homesteaders. But to this very day, we have the priority water right. And uh, when water starts getting short, you know, rather than everybody sharing in the misery and everybody reducing their share of water or something, the way it works here is the lowest priority right, you just get shut off completely. And so the ranch we're on, sometimes we'll be running full tilt water when almost nobody else has any water around. It does not make you very popular in the neighborhood in a mm -hmm in a tough year, but that's how important, yeah, water is here. So that, you know, that that's almost 140 years ago, one guy had a better horse. And so that's why we've got the abundance of water that we have here. And in Idaho, as opposed to other country, uh, countries, countries, as opposed to other um, states, um, the water right can't be separated from the property. Um, in, in our counties, it cannot be separated from the, the uh, property, 
um, there are some locations in Idaho where they have changed oh. those uh, laws. It, it's on a county by county basis okay. because in, in your more affluent, more de rapidly developing counties, um, they have to do something different in order to be able to develop and sell these properties. So some places are getting dried out, you know, mm. horribly. They'll, they'll never see a drop of water other than natural rainfall again. Mm. Mm. And uh, it's been a long time since we've seen a drop of natural rainfall here. Today's guest is Jim Garish. He's a writer, teacher, speaker, consultant, grazing management for almost half a century. How does that sound? Oh, almost um, half a century. <laughs> Um, <laughs> sorry about that. We're, we're the same age. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> karma may not be kind. Um, you in other presentations have talked about the, the cow's job description and the manager's job description. So what in the world? I mean, the cow signs up footprint. What, 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 what's, what's going on here? Okay. Uh, one of the things that really bothers me is when people talk about dumb animals or, you know, a rancher says, eh, that cow's just really stupid. Uh, as it turns out, usually if a rancher thinks a cow is stupid, it's actually one of the most intelligent cows on the ranch because she's figured out how to do something different from what the rancher wants. All right. So every cow uh, really has the skill set, the knowledge to do everything that a cow should be able to do. So when I think about the cow's job description, I mean, and, and in workshops that we do, this is one of the exercises we have the uh, participants or students do is write a position description for a cow. Because the way I looked at in any livestock, every animal is an employee of the ranch. So if you've got a ranch with 200 cows, that's a business with 200 employees. If you had a business with 200 employees in salmon, I'm pretty sure you would have written something called position descriptions for the different employees. And that, you know, some people think that that's just so the employee knows what their job is. But to me, it's just as important that the manager know what the employee's job is. So the things that we would put on a position description for a cow is feed herself. It shouldn't be my job to carry hay and put in front of a cow so she, she can eat. Because in the you know, hundreds of thousands of years of cow evolution before they became domesticated, nobody was making hay for them. Nobody was feeding them hay. You know, they were making a living on their own. Another one is find the best bite of feed that you can. A cow inherently knows how to move, move through a pasture or across the range and find the highest energy, the highest protein plants. They can find mineral uh, uh, plants that have particular minerals in and supplement themselves with minerals. It should not, I should not have to pay a professional nutritionist to tell me what my cows need to eat because she already knows, okay? She needs to deliver a live calf every year. It should not be my job to be out there in the dead of winter pulling calves out of a cow because she can't have it on her own. That's not my job. My job is to decide who her boyfriend is and when they have their first date. And if I do a good job of that, then I'm never going to have a calf born in the winter and I'm never going to have to worry about, you know, pulling a calf in the snow and putting it in the bathtub in the house to keep it from freezing to death. Um, all of that stuff that conventional ranching does, you know, I call self-inflicted wounds. Hmm. Um, it's completely unnecessary to subject themselves and their livestock to those kind of, uh, you know, conditions and activities. I also expect her to spread fertilizer for me. I expect her to 
incorporate seed into the ground for me. And really important, I want her to come to work every day with a positive attitude. You know, that's uh, there's nothing worse than working with mean, ornery cows. Of course, the only way you get mean, ornery cows is by people making them into mean, ornery cows, um, which have you ever noticed that some employers in town do that? They create lousy employees because they're mean and ornery. All right. So those are the sort of things that are the, the cow's job. Find her own feed, balance her nutrition, spread, have live babies, keep it healthy, uh, spread fertilizer, control weeds. Um, that, that's the cow's job. So we think about what's the manager's job. I think in any business, the first responsibility of the manager is to create a working environment where your employees can thrive. So my role as a manager is to create a working environment for these cows where they can be the very best cow that you know they're genetically capable of being. Um, now, we, there, we use the infrastructure word already. Uh, I have to maintain and create that infrastructure. I've never seen a cow run through a fence and then turn around and put it back up. So that is you know, my job. And then the, uh, the uh, other really big one is marketing ranch products. Uh, too many farmers and ranchers, all they do is they sell what they produce. They do not market products. They sell commodities. And there's far more profit potential, far higher revenue possibilities if you are marketing a product rather than just selling a commodity. And for um, you know, an increasing number of livestock producers, that product is 100% you know, grass-fed or pasture-raised, you know, however we're expressing it, uh, but, but, but it's beef or lamb or eggs or, or pastured pork. It is going directly to the consumer with a uh, product rather than just selling commodities to you know, Cargill and Tyson and whoever. And one of the things that I don't think enough credit is given is in these systems, they have an impact on wildlife within the landscape uh -huh. that the management is taking place in. Yeah. Um, the, what's really interesting, and Savory saw this in Africa years and years ago, and you know, it took him a while to uh, realize it, but we see it in this country also. The best managed, and by best, I, I don't mean as industrial agriculture defines it because you're using all of the, you know, right products. But when we are managing based on ecosystem functionality, uh, or as a, a lot of uh, ranchers express it these days, you know, ranching in harmony with nature, or ranching with mother nature. When we do that, the ranch becomes more productive. We're carrying more livestock, but those ranches also carry most of the wildlife in the neighborhood. Uh, consistently since we've been here, um, you know, I you know, look at the neighbor's place in late summer, fall, and it's grazed down. Uh, you know, quite short. You don't look over there and see the deer, the antelope, the elk there. We carry more livestock, but we leave more residual behind because we're managing based on time control rather than just space. And the birds, you know, the the, the raptors, the songbirds, uh, and we saw this on our farm in Missouri too. The better job you do of managing livestock to create productive, healthy grasslands, the more wildlife they will share that landscape with. And that was uh, a, a recent um, documentary, very short, 13 some minutes, uh, Guardians of the Grasslands yep. from, uh, and there was a quote by one of the managers that cattle share the ecosystem as opposed to mm -hmm. converting the grassland to agronomic crops, which obviously is a 
transformation of the grassland and yeah somewhere i've heard what the figure is for the amount of the high rainfall grasslands of the world that have been converted into cropland mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and it's yeah the majority mm -hmm. of it let's just leave it there yeah I'll, I'll just you know say this at this time if we are interested in ecosystem function if we are interested in wildlife diversity going to a 100% plant-based diet is absolutely the worst choice that anyone could make. Um, you know, the um, even with organic crops, um, it's still mostly monoculture, you know, farming. Now, small-scale organic CSA uh, is going to have a nice mixture of things there. But if we're looking at industrial organic, which most, if you're going to any of the supermarkets and uh, even at Whole Foods, a whole lot of uh, what's on the shelf there is industrial, organic. It's large monoculture fields, uh, a lot of tillage taking place and tillage kills life in the soil. And if you kill life in the soil and reduce um, vertebrate populations there, you're gonna be reducing bird populations um, you're going to be reducing small rodent populations, which reduces predator populations, so 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 on and so forth. Um, anytime you're looking at a monoculture plant crop, whether it's organic or industrial, that will not support near the wildlife nor ecosystem services as what healthy grassland does. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm, we, and that's why every, every farm, every farm can benefit from incorporating livestock with their, uh, their uh, grain crops, their vegetable crops, their fruit orchards, uh, you know, grazing sheep under uh, various types of orchards is becoming increasingly uh, in demand because both Farmers and consumers are realizing that so many of these orchards that we have that are kept basically as a sterile environment, except for that tree. I mean, t t peach orchards are beautiful, but they are a monoculture and they are a uh, biological desert when it comes to soil life, to bird life, um, and to any larger wildlife. If you uh, convert that bare ground that's under so many of these orchards to grass and sheep are what are popular to graze in there and you graze sheep through there we've changed that from being a uh, biological desert to being a vibrant landscape with more uh, soil microbial life more soil invertebrate life more bird life and even the deer will wander in there. Yeah, and they'll eat the peaches and stuff. But, yeah, small price to pay. Well, we right now in Western Oregon, we have a lot of the grass seed ground that's being planted into hazelnuts. And you drive by these, and right now there's, you know, the 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 small trees are maybe three foot tall, but there's everything. It's bare ground already mm -hmm. um and so exactly that point you can see the same thing in the almond orchards in california avocados that that's where i really uh it was really brought home to me um because i you know I, I work in grazing lands not farms or vegetables or stuff but i had a, a client in california who um was doing what we would call a full cart csa you know they wanted to provide vegetables, fruits, nuts, meats, uh, poultry, all of those things. And that's the first place where I actually went and walked in an avocado orchard. And they were converting this property from conventional farming to organic and biodynamic farming. And my jaw dropped and said, wow, is this really how they do it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They should not want to buy anything um, you know, buy avocados and avocados. I love avocados. They're a wonderfully healthy thing, but I'd sure rather get them from a tree that a sheep was grazing under and pooping under. Or, you know, eat a steak, um, what have you. Um, it make, makes us look at animal source foods differently from an environmental 
you know, perspective mm-hmm. when we realize these things. Um, so we've already alluded to the kick the hay habit. Um, what, what, and, and maybe this ties in with another question, which is how does grazing management differ if you're in a cow-calf operation or in a feeder, a stalker, feeder, finishing kind of operation, or if you're in a dairy? Because you wouldn't okay. manage those or set them up right. the same way. Okay. So in, in, a, in a beef cow-calf situation, usually your expectation is you're going to be owning these animals 365 days of the year, the cows. You know, if, if you're raising calves to be seven or eight months of old and then you're selling them, the calves are only there for a period of time, but the cows are there 365 days a year, which means they have to eat something 365 days of the year. And there's been analysis after analysis after analysis done that basically says the number one driver of profitability in the cow-calf business is simply feed costs. So we have to look at lower cost ways of feeding the animals. And if you have set stocked pastures, so there's no infrastructure out there, you're not doing any management, uh, you have very little input cost on going on that acre, but you have the overhead costs associated with it. And if set stocking in, we'll just say in this environment, uh, gives you 100 cow days per acre, and really top-notch management gives you 200 cow days per acre, you have just cut your overhead cost per unit of production in half by producing that 200 cow days per acre. And so you can afford to invest some into labor for management, into the infrastructure, because you're getting so much more out of it. And so basically in the cow-calf business, every day that you can graze is money saved compared to feeding that animal hay. How big is the cost differential between them? If we go back to um, uh, our example of uh, set stocking and only producing 100 cow days per acre, grazing is still going to be somewhat cheaper than uh, feeding hay, but it's surprisingly not that much different because the overhead costs per cow day are so high. So um, if you can increase your productivity per acre, largely through changing the grazing management, um, then our cost per day, the the marginal difference between feeding hay and grazing uh, becomes more and more uh, favorable to to grazing. And so that's what really drives this this idea of kicking the hay habit um, is that grazing or really making hay is so much more expensive than it used to be. Like when I was growing up in the, uh, uh, the custom hay business, the large round hay baler, so the one that makes, you know, the big load or uh, round bales out there. We, we bought our first one in 1973 and uh, paid, uh, I think, 42, it was either 42 or $4,800 for it. An equivalent piece of equipment today is at a minimum going to be 48000 probably higher. So it's a, that piece of equipment, <clears throat> it costs 10 times more today than it did then. <clears throat> if we look at the value of our product, beef, in uh, 1973 versus today, uh, the price of beef has only increased about threefold. So the cost of the equipment to make the hay has gone up tenfold, the value of the product only threefold. We look at the cost of diesel fuel. Um, 19, I used 1973 as a benchmark, one of the reasons that I graduated from high school that year, but also, um, it's the what the finished beef price was in July of 1973 in terms of inflation adjusted dollars. So consumer buying power, that is the highest beef price we have ever seen in the U.S. Uh, about what was it, five, five, six years ago when, you know, prices seemed to go sky high. And uh, wow, this is huge prices uh, that in 
inflation-adjusted dollars, that was only about two-thirds of what the price of value of beef was in 1973. So we, you look at the cost of fertilizer, cost of fuel, price of labor, cost of the equipment. Uh, all of those things have increased at three to four times the rate that the value of our product. So what made sense uh, as a um, uh, an operating model in 1973 does not make sense anymore uh, because of that change in uh, cost of the inputs and value of the output. And unfortunately, most, because it's a uh, generational business, farming and ranching is in many cases, uh, some of the old guys and gals on the farms and ranches you know, they still remember that wonderful day in 1973 when they got that phenomenally high beef price and they remember how they were operating and they, they, they're still living in those days and they have forced that on their children. Uh, one thing I've noted about agriculture is most of us operate in the economic paradigms of our parents of the previous generation. And because the economy is constantly changing, and today it changes at an even faster rate, um, you can't live a generation behind and expect to be profitable on this landscape. So you have to change. And that circles us all the way back to where we kind of started this conversation with what's really a new idea. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and the challenge, of course, in forage agriculture is we're producing a crop that we have to convert into a saleable product mm -hmm. that, that we can't, I mean, some people can make hay and are in that business, but um, they're also doing it at a different scale and they're doing it uh, to a degree that it's probably not wise for livestock producers for the most part to look at making the investment in equipment and inputs and everything else to harvest. So, but, but let's maybe take a step and say, so what is it about management that could change? You can't increase the growing season much. Um, you, you might protect some early season growth by not having animals on it right away. Um, what other kinds of things could you do be doing that shifts the feed from in time? And, and you've mentioned that too, time versus space management. So that might be a good thing to talk a little bit about. Okay. Um, I, and, and I realize um, a lot of the listeners are, you know, they're they're listening to the program from their interest in human nutrition, and they're not necessarily familiar with a lot of specifics of ranching. So there's a term we use that is called stocking rate, and stocking rate is the number of animals that we put on the farm for a defined period of time. Um, and this would be on the effective grazing area, not yeah, yeah, on the on the effective grazing area, and um, stock because grass does not grow at the same rate every year, and depending on where you are in the U.S., you might have five months where absolutely nothing grows, but you still have animals that need to eat something. So um, we talk about having a flexible stocking rate, and that means that you are going to uh, change the number of animals and type of animals that are on the uh, pasture seasonally. And so um, if you, I'll come to the cow-calf example. If you have a cow-calf operation and you base your stocking rate on your summer grazing capacity, that pretty well guarantees that you're gonna have excess forage in the spring that you're probably going to cut for hay. You're going to have nothing left at the end of the growing season because basically by definition, we said we were stocked at our summer capacity. So the end of the growing season gets here and there's nothing left standing in the pastures. So now you have to feed all that hay that you made in the spring of the year. That's what happens when you have a fixed stocking rate based on summer grazing capacity. 
what I say in classes and what I tell our clients is you base your cowherd size not on your summer grazing capacity, but on your winter grazing capacity. And that is how you guarantee yourself that you won't have to feed hay in the wintertime because that number is going to be lower than what based on summer grazing capacity is. Yes, you are going to have surplus feed in the spring. And this is where the flexible stocking rate comes into play. So we look at what are our opportunities of bringing additional livestock um, onto the farm to utilize in, in that um, period, shorter period of time, which is typically May, June, July, maybe into August for you know a big part of the U.S. That's when we have the um, excess amount of growth. So we're looking at a livestock enterprise where we can buy animals or custom graze animals, lease animals to come in and harvest that. And what a lot of uh, ranchers do is they are going to bring in what we call stockers or yearling cattle. So these are calves that were born the previous year, overwintered somewhere, and then brought out to pasture in the spring. Um, usually those animals are going to be uh, of a weight class that you will not have any finished animals, you know, when August rolls around that you can sell for uh, grass-fed beef. So those uh, yearling cattle, you know, get sold back into the commodity system and they go to a feedlot. Uh, they might get picked up by someone doing grass-fed beef because now you've added 300 pounds to their weight and they're closer to finish. Uh, but another class of animals that you could bring in are skinny cows, skinny open cows. So an open cow is a cow that isn't bred. In the U.S. right now, something over just over 60% of the beef consumed in the U.S. is ground beef. You do not have to have a USDA choice steer to produce hamburger. Within the grass-fed meat sector, I believe that number is around 70%. 70% of the grass-fed beef consumed in the U.S. is as ground beef. And so if you bring these uh, thin cows in, um, they you know, lost their calf at calving time in the winter, or um, you know, they weren't even bred the previous year and the cattle producer did not you know, preg check to determine pregnancy status. So spring rolls around and here's a cow they've kept all winter, but it gave no calf, so they sell it. Um, you can take a thin cow and turn her into very good hamburger in 60 to 90 days. And so uh, using the open thin cow as your excess, you're harvesting your excess forages in May, June, July is a really good option that actually consistently gives one of the best returns in the beef business is just fattening pole cows. Hmm. So there's different and, options to do, but that's part of the flexibility in stocking, right? And then at the fall end, um, the stockpiling option of allowing pasture to okay. grow and then ration it off once we exit the growing season. Um, is used in a lot of parts of the mm -hmm. country. Further north, I know, um, actually swathing, harvesting, and, and letting it sit in the field mm -hmm. as a swath and then rationing that out with strip tillage, or strip grazing, um, fencing. Um, even under snow that, remarkably enough, cattle can graze through snow. I how how they ever survived before we invented balers, I don't know. But yeah. um, lo lots of things along that line. So we've touched on a number of uh, topics. And one of my growing interests is the whole area of uh, global food systems and, and what has to happen in other parts of the world for all the reasons that we're rightly concerned about in this country, arguably 
they're at least present, if not worse, in some of these other areas. So you've talked a lot about working in the U.S., and I know you've visited places like Australia. Have you visited other parts of the world, um, or do you have any thoughts about how what you've learned over the course of your career could impact favorably sustainable food systems in low- and middle-income countries? Okay. Um, yes, I, I've I've worked in uh, several South American countries, uh, Mongolia, uh, Mexico, and <clears throat> um, the idea that the American farmer is supposed to feed the world is one of the very worst uh, concepts or ideas that has ever been put forward. Uh, you know, it's political buzzword. Um, it's, it, but it's terrible. Uh, the position we need to be in worldwide is local economies feeding local populations. Um, you know, globalization, uh, it, it's very much a two-edged sword. And I think when we start talking about food systems, food reliability, food security, globalization is absolutely one of the worst paths we can go down. Um, I don't remember the, the year. I think it was uh, about 05 or 08. I remember FAO report uh, that was really touting that it is uh, local, organic agriculture production, you know, community-based food production that is going to allow us to feed 9 billion people on this planet. Uh, the industrial food model, uh, we know that the nutritional value of food has been steadily declining since you know, approximately World War II. It's less nutrient dense. Um, just nutritionally, we are putting ourselves into a worse and worse and worse position with the industrial food system. And just what we need is 2 billion more people on this planet eating crap and becoming less and less healthy. So they're more and more susceptible to coronaviruses, Whatever the next thing they throw at us is, um, we are making ourselves less and less less functional as a species through the industrial food system. The foundation of healthy food is healthy soils, and you can. Uh, there's no aspect of the industrial food system that is doing anything to create healthy soils that make healthy food. Um, you know, the worldwide revolution, well, I, I think we need a half a dozen different worldwide revolutions, but one of the biggest ones is get away from this idea that American farmers are supposed to be feeding the world. That's what's killing the world. It's what's killing their agricultural economies. So I, I'm, I think we should be exporting, you know, uh, our knowledge of soil health, regenerative ranching, um, how to build carbon in the soil, how to build a functional water system, how to rely on animals as part of our nutrient cycle for uh, food production. That's the knowledge that we should be exporting, not uh, a industry built on um, you know, a lot of iron and oil and pesticides and fertilizers. The only one who's benefiting from that is those companies who are making and selling those products. The people on the other end aren't deriving long-term benefit. Hmm. Our guest today has been Jim Garish, um, a longtime friend. Um, although we got separated for a while, it's good to touch base with you again. Uh, where can people learn more about you and what you're doing? Uh, what sources you've you've mentioned? Um, Grass productivity by Andre Voisson. 
I've mentioned uh, your management and graze uh, management intensive hyphenated lower eye grazing um, books, which I think are still available from University of Missouri. Um, Kick uh, the, the hay feeding habit, right? Uh, the MIG book and Kick the Hay Habit um, had nothing to do with the University of Missouri. Those were, okay. you know. Uh, private writing and publications. So I'm sorry. So, yeah, ab ab absolutely, they're available. So, um, and you know, we have the consulting services. We sell educational products. Also, our business is American Grazing Lands Services, and you can find us on the web at americangrazinglands.com. Uh, you can follow American Grazing Land Services on you know Facebook. Uh, but as, as long as you can remember that American Grazing Land Services, you can find us and all about the products and services we provide and the things that we've been talking about today. Wonderful. And I'll be sure to include links in I appreciate notes that. for the program. Of course, thank you for your time. If you have any questions for me, I'm happy to try to answer them. You know, just... Back to that, how are you, Peter? Is everything good? Yeah, everything is well with us. Um, the more you learn about what it's like to be a human being on Earth today, <clears throat> the more you realize how overpaid you are. Um, in my case, I, I don't mean to slight what other people are going yeah. through. Um, my family is secure. We're all healthy. Um, I'm blessed with the opportunities that I have. And I get to, you know, talk to some of the world's most fascinating people. Sorry, that would be over there. Sorry. Um, and and you can tell I've done this so much. I'm just so professional at it. Um, I, I think that what so many people are concerned about, people have been working in. And we just need to get better at telling those stories and helping people learn that what I think is really good news, that we can have healthy people, healthy soils, thanks to ruminant animal agriculture, that the evidence is far clearer that too many people are harmed by too little animal source food in their diet, and that any fear about too much is largely mythology based on really poor methodology, and that um, I think forage agriculture writ large is the solution to all of the problems that we can envision ahead of us. So I'm excited and happy to be banging the drum for forage agriculture. That's great. I agree 100% in everything you said there. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jim. Um, be well, and I look forward to the next time I can visit your part of the country. I was looking up, I, I have gotten off on a geology jag over the years and looking about Lake Missoula, but I don't think it quite came down into where you live is in, in you know, those I'm, I'm not sure about Lake Missoula, but I know we can go 9,000 feet elevation on the mountain and pick up horn coral. Okay. Yeah, so there you go. Whether that was the bottom of Lake Missoula or, uh, you know, some other inland sea, I'm not sure. I haven't gone on the geology jag yet. Donna would actually probably know that. I do not. I, well, since we in the Willamette Valley end up farming the eastern Washington soil that got blasted out when Lake Missoula drained close to 100 times over the course of that last thaw, um, when the, the, the glaciers melted. It's just something that I, I find a little mm -hmm. humbling that the uh, earth has undergone some significant changes over the, you know, uh, um, and now there's evidence that human beings could well have been here for it. So that would have been a bad day if you were living in the valley. Yeah, it would have been. <laughs> so when, when, um, when, when's the last time Lake Missoula dumped? Well, I think the figures are it happened somewhere like 18,000 to 15,000 years ago. Yep, and, and, and current anthropology is pushed uh, human occupation North America back at least that far. It, and 30,000, you know, I'm beginning to, you know, see 30,000 years that people have been on this continent. Well, and I, I started um, 
the, uh, I came across some scholarship looking at what's called Salutrian connection that maybe, maybe one of the groups of people that came to North America came from France, Iberian Peninsula uh, during the last glacial maximum. And that would <clears throat> perhaps explain some of the ancient maybe pre-Clovis people on the East Coast, which is hard to explain if they all came in on the West side. And the timing doesn't really line up for a lot of that theory, even mm -hmm. though it's conventional wisdom. And the whole conventional wisdom thing is something that we know something about when it comes to forage management or human nutrition. Or So it's always interesting to see, well, I mean, continental, uh, the the plate tectonics wasn't accepted until 62. I mean, <laughs> um, and you, you look at the guy, Bretz, who said, look, you know, the channeled scablands in Washington, that's all high velocity, large volume water. Oh, no. You know, and it took him most of his career before that was accepted. Hmm. So there's been a number of these scientific controversies that pushed against the conventional wisdom, but in the fullness of time, people see that eh, maybe that is the way it goes. Science advances one funeral at a time, I think I've heard. Yep, just just like ranching. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, um, again, I wish you the best, and I look forward to the next time that we can get together and yeah, do some so good... Do some good planning, you know, uh, you, you can have whatever you drink and I'll drink some coffee and mm -hmm. we'll be good. Yep, we'll, we will. All right. All right. Take good care. Thank you, Peter. You have a good afternoon. You too, Jim. And thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure.